Well, good morning, friends. I'm excited about today's message, and I I hope you are too. Um, Grab your Bibles. We're going to go very quickly through our text today um, due to its its narrative format. So for those of you that haven't been here too long, I usually kind of lean toward expository preaching. Um, But since today's, our passage is really part of a really long story, and so it's going to be a more textually based sermon. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25 and part of 26. That's right. It's going to be a long one. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually not a real long sermon, but it is a long text. Okay, so just have your Bibles ready to go. Uh, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, and that was where uh, Paul had been in prison for two years under Governor Felix, and Felix was just succeeded by a guy whose name was Portius Festus. And so today we're going to be reading about this interaction between Festus and Paul. And so there's a lot here today, but it's it's really cool to consider how much of what's happening to Paul was exactly what Jesus told his disciples was going to happen to them in Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to get to that shortly, but while the kids are, are finding the bingo pictures, there's seven of them, by the way, uh, I want to draw your attention um, back to uh, a, a previous passage that was read this morning because it serves as a basis for Paul's actions in the, in the book of Acts, really, and, and particularly in this part that we're going to read today. So it'll also help the title make sense. Um, that passage from Matthew, I'm, I'm sorry, it was Matthew chapter 5, not 10. Um, from Matthew chapter 5, this is verses 10 through 13. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account falsely. Now that's that's important, okay? I want to just bear in mind, if you're going to be picked on, let it be for being a Christian, not for being a jerk. Okay? Just bear that in mind. So he says, So blessed are you, and others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That, that sounds like Paul's situation, right? But then comes this awesome line You are the salt of the earth. It's the beginning of Matthew 5 13. You are the salt of of the earth. And that's an interesting phrase. You know, often we use that phrase in today's vernacular to describe people that are, that are simple and, and earthy, you know, and just kind of generally kind-hearted, whether they're Christians or not. But is that what Jesus meant? No. Thank you. <laughs> it's not what Jesus meant. No, but if Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth, then what does that mean for us? How are we to be salty? So church, what we're going to do today is is talk about what that means using the example of the Apostle Paul. Now, why are we going to talk about this? Because friends, I I think Jesus' use of salt as an example is extremely profound. And I also believe that once we once we kind of determine what it means, we're going to agree that Christianity in America is nowhere near salty enough. Considering that as, as of the 2020 census, um, nearly two-thirds of Americans, about 63%, are, 
of people surveyed profess to be Christian, there is a definitive lack of salt in our nation today. And so, so before we get into our text, I want to talk about what salt does. Let's talk about what salt does. Vance Havner is quoted as saying, salt seasons, purifies, preserves, but everybody ought to remind us that salt also irritates. Real Christianity, he says, real living Christianity rubs this world the wrong way. He is absolutely right. We're going to take just a few minutes to look at, at those very things that salt does. So first of all, when we think of salt, we probably think of it as seasoning because salt seasons our food, right? And we like salt in our food, don't we? Some of us like it way too much, right? You may know this, um, but some of you are new, so I just got to tell you, my dad has, it's, it's kind of weird to say it with a smile on my face, my dad has a disease, and it's called Addison's disease, and what it does is it, it prevents his body, I'm not sure of all the mechanics behind it, but it prevents his body from retaining sodium. And so he has to take a pill to basically stay alive. The good news for him is he really likes salt. And so when he found out that he could have all the salt he wanted, this man salts McDonald's fries, y'all, okay? Yeah, so his students bought him, as a, as a joke, bought him a salt lick, like this giant donut of salt on a rope. My dad took it home, broke it into pieces. Judah remembers this. And he used to lay on the couch going, <laughs> sucking on this huge lump of salt while he was. Now, nobody came up and shot him, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't for hunting purposes. But it was just bizarre. Uh, but, you know, we like salt. It's something, you know, it, it, it actually makes food, some food that's not even that great. It makes it taste really, really good. Anyway, I originally wanted to say that salt flavors the food but I think seasons is actually a better word because it doesn't, it doesn't only affect the flavor. I mean, did you know that salt actually changes the chemical composition of some of the food that it's in and it brings out that aroma? I think that's really interesting. Um, so it's true, but in the, in the book of Leviticus, God even told Moses, he says, you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And, and that's interesting. I mean, to me at least, it's interesting. Salt was considered a valuable commodity in biblical times. And, and so I don't know if that was part of the reason, but it's possible that it made the sacrifice smell better. You know, and, and the Lord does mention sacrifices as having a pleasing aroma. But either way, salt seasons... And Jesus' followers ought to season the world around us, making life more palatable for those who are struggling. Now, what else does salt do? It also preserves. One of my favorite things in the world is a new bag of beef jerky. Because, just remember that when Pastor Appreciation Month comes around, um, because of the salt content, you know, even, even though it's meat, it doesn't have to be refrigerated. And in biblical times, uh, since they didn't have refrigeration, obviously, the only way to preserve meat was to add salt to it, and that would keep it from going bad. And salt prevents rot. You know, it keeps food from being destroyed by corruption. And this is exactly what those who follow Christ are supposed to do for the world. We're supposed to prevent corruption. How are we doing? Here's the problem. If you, if you allow the salt 
to become too diluted with the other elements. It, it actually no longer functions as salt. It becomes completely ineffective at preservation. As Jesus said, salt is good. By the way, remember that too. Jesus said, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, well, how you make it salty again? If we let ourselves as Christians be diluted to the point of ineffectiveness, we no longer function as the salt of the earth. So as Jesus continues, have salt in yourselves. There's a related function salt has, and that's its ability to purify. It acts as an antibacterial agent. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a really, honestly, the entire chapter of Ezekiel 16 is really odd, but, but there's this odd reference in verse 4. It alludes to this, the ancient practice of rubbing salt on newborn infants, and the reason they did that was to keep the infants from getting a disease. It's very similar, I think, to, to some extent to the way they used to put silver nitrate in the eyes of newborn babies. But they would rub newborn infants with salt. And even today, we use saline solution for a whole lot of stuff in medicine, you know, for flushing IVs and, and for wound irrigation, even neti pots. You know, some of you guys are familiar with those. Uh, Epsom salt is actually rapidly replacing chlorine as a healthier alternative in swimming pools uh, because salt kills impurities. It's not as bad for you as chlorine. So it's a reminder, I think, that those who believe on Christ, we are called to be purifying agents in our own sphere of influence, even in one's own family. You know, a believer has, has a positive influence. Peter mentions the effect of a believing spouse on, uh, on his or her marital partner, and, and Paul indicates that children are sanctified because of one believing parent. But let's also not forget that salt added to a wound has a tendency to irritate. It burns, in fact. Anyone ever forget about a cut on your finger until you're eating those McDonald's fries? You know? You find it real quick, don't you? Because it burns. Well, as we see in Paul's life, he was very salty. And when he applied that, that saltiness to the society around him, it caused a lot of irritation, even as the spreading of the gospel was saving souls. Likewise, salt is promoting healing, even though it burns in the moment. But we need to remember the flip side of that. While healing, salt can cause a lot of irritation. But we shouldn't let that dissuade us from being the salt of the earth. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But then he indicates that the aroma is life to the one and death to the other. So salt will heal, but it also will irritate. Now with all this in mind, we're going to pray. I'm going to dive into the book of Acts, all right? So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for each person here, and I pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, that all of us learn what it means to be salty. God, help us to, to not try to keep all the salt in the shaker. Help us to preserve and flavor and purify. And, and Lord, to, to irritate as we're healing. Lord, it's, it's something that we, we know is going to happen because we see it in Scripture all over the place. Father, we want to be faithful. And so I ask today that you help this 
the seeds that are planted fall in good soil, that we may take root, we may bear fruit, we may honor you with our lives, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so beginning in verse 1, chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, they're urging Festus, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're planning to ambush him on the way, right? Just like they had previously. Now remember, this is, this is more than two years after they had tried to take out Paul when he was sent uh, to Felix to be on trial. So they're still, two years later, they're still trying to find a way to destroy him, and they're still trying to do it in an illegal and underhanded way, okay? Now Festus replied that Paul was being kept to Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, uh, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. In other words, come on down, we can have another trial. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, accompanied by the Jews that wanted to murder Paul, okay? And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood against him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. You might recall the last week's message was about dismantling the lies, referring to slanderous accusations that people attack Christians with. And that is exactly what was going on here. These, these Jewish rulers were making all kinds of statements about Paul, but they couldn't prove any of them. And so Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, there's that again from last week, I don't know if you remember that, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, dot, 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 <laughs> we're going to get there in a few seconds, but first, let's explain what Festus is doing. Okay, Since Festus wants to earn some social currency with these leaders in Israel, he's asking Paul if he wants to go back to Jerusalem where he would get murdered instead of standing trial in Rome, which is where his, his protected status as a legal citizen uh, would help him because of the law. I'm going to move this down because it keeps popping. Sorry about that. Now, that's going to be important later. For now, Paul is showing us an example of what is acceptable behavior for a Christian who is standing up for God, okay? Now remember, this is important because as he said, Paul was actually innocent of the charges that he was being accused of. Remember, inciting riots, profaning the temple and all that stuff. So the reason, the reason that he was standing before this court had to do with sharing his faith in Jesus Christ and not because of anything else that he had actually done that was wrong. Now, why bring that up? Because sometimes we confuse standing up for ourselves and standing up for God. And while it's not wrong to stand up for ourselves when we're in the right, it's a lot easier to know that we're in the right when we're standing up for God. Now, Paul's agenda here is to promote Christ. So keep that in mind. But in a situation like this, friends, it's completely acceptable to argue in your defense. 
All right, now we, we talked about this a little bit last week, but to reiterate, under normal circumstances, I do not believe that Christians are called to passively allow ourselves to be slanderously labeled in a way that dishonors Christ. When we're called hateful, because we are sharing what our very loving God says about immorality, that is a slander when we're called hateful, not only toward us, but toward the God that we serve as ambassadors for. And in similar fashion, if we are known to be Christians and we're accused of something that we are innocent of, I believe the general principle is to defend ourselves because the honor of our faith may be at stake in the eyes of onlookers. You know, if they see us and they know we're Christians and we're being accused of something we didn't do or something that we are not, if we just let that accusation stand, who does that harming ultimately? I believe it's God's reputation. Now, I'm not saying that we should apply this universally because sometimes the Holy Spirit leads a person not to engage. We saw it in Christ himself, okay? But as a general principle, I think that Christians who are in the right have the right to defend ourselves. Let's get back to what uh, Paul says here. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I am to be tried. In other words, no, Festus, I don't want to go to Jerusalem and get murdered. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape, escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. What tenacity. <laughs> I love Paul. He, he's just, uh, he's got that chutzpah. And, and there are a couple of lessons here I think that have value uh, for us. So first of all, I think this gives us latitude as believers to use the laws of the land to our advantage. Okay? See, since Paul was a Roman citizen, he got a say in where he was to be tried. Now, he had a choice. He could have, you know, gone back to, to Jerusalem. He knew that would have meant a kangaroo court, even if he made it. Like, he, would, he didn't know he would have made it. But God had told him back in chapter 23, he said he was going to testify in Rome, so he was using his legal right to refuse deportation. Now, friends, I want to encourage you to remember that you can also use your legal rights as an American citizen, while they're still being recognized, to believe and to live your Christian faith without being inhibited in any way by the government. I want to say that very, very clearly. In fact, I'm going to repeat it, okay? You need to remember to use your legal rights as an American citizen to believe and live your Christian faith without being inhibited in any way by the government. Under the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America, you and I have the right to the free exercise of religion. Okay? In fact, according to, to Cornell Law, the free exercise clause withdraws from legislative power, fe, uh, state, federal, um, the exertion of any restraint on the free exercise of religion. Its purpose is to secure religious liberty in the individual by prohibiting any invasions thereby civil authority. Okay? This is the law. This, this is the reason 
that Grace Community Church in L.A., California was able to continue meeting during COVID despite various threats and attempts by the government to shut them down. It's also the reason the church won a lawsuit against the government for their attempted interference. Now, we may have dual citizenship, okay, uh, in, in heaven, right? That's, we do. We're citizens of heaven. We have dual citizenship, but as long as we're on earth, we should not be afraid to take advantage of the means that God has provided for us to legally fight for our right to preach truth. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. And I think it fits what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16. He says, Behold, I send, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as what? Wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. That's one of many verses in Matthew chapter 10 that can apply to Paul's situation. Anyway, learn your legal rights, folks. Don't just assume that your school or your workplace or your civil authorities have the right to make you stop saying or doing or thinking what God tells you that you need to say and do and think. Okay? All right. We also see in this passage it's good to have no fear of death. Now, this was a little more easily said than done for sure, and it, it probably seems like this conversation has escalated really quickly. But, but really, why fear death? I mean, because Jesus said, again, it's also it's in Matthew 10. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God, not men. And here's the thing. If you're not afraid to die for Jesus, then the lesser sacrifices that you may have to make will be all that much easier to deal with. You know, if you're not afraid of death, are you really going to fear losing your job or offending somebody or being mocked or being mistreated? We miss out on a lot of opportunities to be salt and light because of the fear of man. Let's keep reading. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. This, this was Herod Agrippa he's talking about. And so um, it, it, Bernice it was actually, I believe, his sister. There was royal incest going on here. It was really bizarre and messed up. But they're king and queen of Judea. There's, um, the reason I'm bringing that up is y'all need to understand these are some severely um, immoral people that we're talking about here. So uh, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused meet their accusers face to face and have the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I want to pause there for a second, okay? This is, this is so key. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one thing 
that the Jewish leaders just absolutely could not stand to hear. Why? They'd all witnessed his death, right? They all knew that Jesus had existed. They knew he had performed miracles. They knew that he had been executed. They'd been there every step of the way for his torture and his crucifixion, but they refused to believe that this whole process was in fulfillment of Scripture, and particularly that he was going to rise again. But he did. He did rise again. And in doing so, he proved that everything he'd said about himself and about them was true. So they, they just couldn't handle it. They, they couldn't handle the truth. They even bribed the Romans who guarded the tomb to claim Jesus' body had been stolen. But Paul would not let their stony hearts deter him from preaching the truth. Jesus is alive. He died to pay for our sins, and he is alive. He's alive. He's in my heart. He's alive at the right hand of God interceding for us. And you can try to deny it, but you cannot disprove it. So friends, Paul gives us a good example of fearlessly taking every chance you get to share the gospel. Folks, if we're the salt of the earth and we, and we season, preserve, and purify it by sharing the gospel, don't you think maybe it's time for us to step up our game? Don't you think that's why we're here? Why God doesn't just take us home as soon as we believe? We are here to spread the word. We're here to glorify God with our lives. Why are we so fearful about telling people the truth that can save them from hell? I mean, Paul, Paul felt duty-bound. He, he was, he was so... He felt so obligated to preach this message, which, which is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe it, that he once wrote, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I can tell you, I, I kind of get what he's saying, you know, if, maybe to a lesser extent, but the prophet Jeremiah said, he said, The word of the Lord is like a fire in my bones. I grow weary of holding it in. If only everybody in the kingdom of heaven was so on fire to share the gospel. Imagine the difference that could happen in our world if everybody was as salty as Paul, you know? Let's keep reading. This is still Festus talking here. Um, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Uh, I get a kick out of that, I think, with great pomp. And they entered the, uh, the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. 
For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And seen. Right? That's the end of chapter 25. But we're not done. Because <laughs> it's, it's not really the end. Okay? The story continues. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul then stretched out his hand <laughs> and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and controversies of the Jews. Y'all, here's another thing that we ought to remember. If we're ever in the position of standing up for God, it is a godly thing and a good idea to be appropriately respectful. Okay? Notice that Paul is polite and deferential towards the authority figures, even though they are not necessarily good leaders or even decent people. You know, neither, neither Festus nor Agrippa nor Bernice were, were, you know, decent folks by any stretch, if you read the historians. Um, but Paul was respectful due to their position. And because he knows that people are often more open to hearing you when you treat them with respect, even if it's not earned respect. Now, on top of that, it's quite possible that this was the Holy Spirit speaking because as Jesus told his disciples again, Matthew chapter 10 said, you know, the time is going to come when you're going to be brought before councils and kings and the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. We're going to come back to that idea in a moment, but continuing. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, we talked about that last week, and it's going to come up again next week, so we're going to gloss over it for now, except to introduce a future point. It says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Valid question. It might sound like a, an odd thing. If this were just like a, a crowd of randos, you know, it'd sound weird maybe for Paul to ask that. But this is not a bunch of random people. This is to Jewish people, and it was a good question because these guys had all heard about Lazarus. Many of them had seen him after he'd been risen from the dead. They, they, they knew about Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead. They'd all read about Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. Why would they struggle to believe God raises the dead? I mean, it's, it's a valid, nakedly obvious question. And it seems instructive to us that we can also appeal to what is obvious when standing up for God. We have every reason, listen to me, as Christians, we have every reason to say that any view of creation that does not have a designer is an impossible and unscientific theory. We can say that because it's true. We can rightly say that abortion 
is the intentional killing of a developing human being that is a separate entity from his or her mother. We can assert that God made man and woman in his own image, and that there are only two genders, and that they are complementary and not interchangeable. We can say that because it's true. And as we continue to say, the emperor has no clothes, it's bound to become apparent to some, even as some of them are going to continue to be blinded by the, the little g God of this age. For they have been taken captive by Satan in order to do his will, is what Scripture says. But as some people might be persuaded, we should continue to speak what is obvious, using logic and empirical truths to bolster our faith whenever possible. You know, the last thing we see from, uh, from Paul here is that he introduces his own personal story of God's work in his life by sharing who he used to be. And what do we call that? testimony. You know, next week we're going to get way deeper into that. We're going to talk about our testimony, okay? But for now, let's just be reminded that each Christian ought to be prepared to share our testimony for how we came to know the Lord and for what he's done for us. There's a familiar passage. In fact, I used it two weeks ago. <laughs> it's come up several times recently in our messages, but, but I'm going to reference, reference it again. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. When speaking of those who are hostile toward the faith, Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It's interesting, isn't it? For the hope that is in you. In other words, have your testimony ready. And then, as Paul showed by example earlier, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And friends, this, this is our purpose, to spread the truth of Christ like Paul did in a way that honors him while still not giving up even an inch of the gospel message. Because that message is life. Again, it's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Romans 1.16. I want to close out this message with one more thing that salt does. It nourishes. We cannot survive without salt. Our bodies need it to maintain a proper electrolyte balance, and it's not just human beings. Biological life, in general, cannot exist without salt. It is a necessary nutrient for physical life, just as faith in Jesus Christ is the necessary nutrient for eternal life. Church, the world needs us to be salty so that they can hear the truth and be saved from the path of destruction. So Christians... Christians, be salty. Be salty. If the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus said it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people in the street. So be salty. And if today for the first time maybe you're recognizing 
the need to repent of your old way of life and your old way of thinking, and you recognize you need to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I want to encourage you to do that now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Come forward during the song and and profess your faith publicly and be baptized in accordance with what our God commands. And if you're wondering whether to share the gospel with that friend or that family member or that neighbor, then decide when it's going to happen, not if. Decide when. In fact, if anything on this slide, if that pertains to you, um, God's inviting you to take that step. So why don't we pray? And then we'll finish up. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name, if anybody is here this morning and they recognize their need for a Savior for the first time, I pray, God, that you will cause them not to be uh, unwilling to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. I pray they will not resist him. I pray that they will come and and make that profession of faith and be baptized and, and walk in accordance with your will. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's maybe not ready to take that step, but they have questions because I'm sure they it's it's easy to have questions, Father, when you when you hear so much of the word thrown at you like a fire hose. And God, I, I just pray that that you give them the courage and the wherewithal to to come up and, and talk to me or talk to a another fellow Christian who who knows the truth, and to ask, what must I do to be saved? Lord, help us to be salt of the earth. I mean, you said we are. Help us to be what we are. And ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,